0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted to make sure to mention, just in case you didn't know, that I have put together some series of webinars. One is a three-part series for people who have been affected by systems of control, people who are still in them or who are considering leaving them, people who are newly out or who've been out for a while, but who have experienced being under someone's influence, whether it is in a relationship or a workplace or a cult of any sort. And it is covering not only what to expect, sort of what people might be going through after they come out of these situations, but also what you need after you've come out of a situation like this. What kind of therapy you might be needing and support you might be needing to get. And also how you share your story with the people in your life and let them know what you've been through in a way that does not make you feel ashamed, does not put the focus on you as you having something wrong with you just because someone did something to you that was without your knowledge or consent. And then the next three-part series is for the families and friends of those who have been in these situations or who still are. And honestly, there are a number of people who have asked for the webinars for others, for their therapists, for educators, for former cult members to be able to explain to their family and friends what would be good for them to know, and how they can get support. And for the family and friends, it is also what you might be going through, what you might be experiencing, the feelings of frustration or helplessness, um, how you intervene in a way that doesn't push your loved one farther away from you and farther into the arms of somebody who is controlling them and manipulating them, and also how you can pierce the isolation by figuring out a way to tell your story, to let other people in your community or in your family know about what's happening without them judging you, without them saying, well, you should have stopped your loved one, or maybe it's the way you raised them that they were vulnerable to this, without it getting redirected onto you, the victim in the story as well. So you can go to my website at rachelbernsteintherapy.com. And go to the drop-down menu in the upper right corner, and you will see webinars at the bottom. And click on that, and be sure to get them for yourself or those you care about. And there are also going to be a lot of videos through the website that are going to be available for download as well on a variety of different subjects. So check it out. I hope it's helpful. Today on the show, we have Shannon Payton, known as Shannon Pants by many. She is a content creator and podcaster living in Rockland, California. Her podcast, The Shanny Pants Show, is currently in its second season. In her interview style podcast, Shannon shares her struggles of growing up in a cult her battles through years of infertility that ended in a hysterectomy, and finally her journey to parenthood through foster care and adoption. Shannon has been a guest on The Kelly Clarkson Show and has appeared on local TV shows. She enjoys sharing the struggles of life in a humorous way as part of her self-prescribed therapy and through this has connected with her fans. I actually was watching The Shanny Pants Show came on my feed and I found what she said to be very moving at times and hilarious at other times and sometimes a mix of both. And I had no idea that she had this connection to the cult world until I saw one of her videos one day where it said that she was raised in a cult. So I contacted her and I said, hi, I'm Rachel Bernstein. I would really Love to talk to you. I don't know if you talk about your cult experience, but would you like to come on the show? And she got back to me right away. And she said, of course, I know who you are. I listen to your podcast all the time. It was very sweet. So we were out there being fans of each other without realizing. And so she is on the show this week and I will be on her show as well. And I am very happy to have you hear her today. So today I get to talk to Shannon Payton, otherwise known as Shanny Pants. Check her out on social media. So I had a response to something that you said. I was just following you because it was so relatable what you were posting. But then you happened to mention a while back about being raised in a cult. So of course my antenna went <laughs> <laughs> up and I reached out. And so I would love for you to introduce yourself and then we'll start talking about your story, and I know your story is more than your cult history, but of course, we're going to want to check in about that. So tell us a little bit about you.
1: All right. My name is Shannon, and I am a wife. We've been married for 22 years now, and I have three kiddos that were all adopted, uh, almost 15-year-old, 9- and 10-year-old girls. So that keeps me busy all the time. I've been saying still that my real job is a realtor, but I think I need to move as I do real estate on the side still because my job is quickly changing into content creating. Uh, So that's kind of been a whole new world for me, but it's been a lot of fun and it's been fabulous. And like Rachel said, I also was born and raised in a cult. So that's a you know, real fun, exciting part of my story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's super fun. So um, I also, I know we talked a little on the phone and when people meet me, they, well, my clients actually have known me for a long time and I feel comfortable being this way with them. They know that I use a lot of humor only because I naturally, I I come from a funny family. And uh, so it's just sort of woven into how you view life. Um, seeing things sort of from the outside a little bit, being able to laugh at things, being able to laugh at yourself, just having it be lighter. And one of the things that people have noticed, and I I highlight it for people when they want to know if their loved one has gotten involved in something that has sort of been taking them over, um, whether it's a relationship or a group of some sort, is one of the characteristics is that you'll see someone become very serious, that they... Lose their sense of humor, or they're kind of raised in an environment where that's not given a chance to grow because it has so much to do with freedom and your creative mind and an individual spirit, et cetera. And a lot of people also are raised feeling like every moment counts and you have to be proving something to the group or to God, and there's no room and there's no time to just kind of be silly and funny. So I can imagine how nice it is for sort of the barn doors to be open. And you can just go, ah, I actually, I'm enjoying myself, but I'm enjoying laughing at the world and my life and what happens around me. Exactly. Yeah. It's
1: definitely uh been quite a freedom and it's, it's been a journey letting, letting go as far as the humor goes with me, because I am very sarcastic and uh, I do find humor, or try to find humor in everything, but I I find humor in most things. And and you're right, growing up, and like I said, I was born into this this cult, which was like a religious group, basically, that started out, I think, in my grandparents' generations, as kind of like a Bible study in homes, and started out probably as a very innocent thing, and then morphed into what it became, you know, a couple generations later. But uh, humor was definitely not just like a daily part of life. But like my mom is a very funny person and really humorous and always was. And so I could remember her and one of my aunts getting together and like making, you know, we had the big old VHS video camera thing and they would get together and make these like hilarious little skits. I mean, they put so much time into it. And, but it was always like on the down low, you know, we could, it wasn't like everyone was going to be able to see this video. And, you know, there was moments where we did have fun times. Like there was a small group of us that would do skits when we would have like our big camps or, or little camps, I guess. And, and it was always this core group of us that would, you know, be brave enough to get up there and make fools of ourselves. But. We would always get in trouble because we would always, you know, say the wrong thing or, and we always thought it was hysterical, but we knew, we knew like, this is probably going to be a risk, but we're going to try anyway and see what happens. And then we would get in trouble. But, but so, so living that way, you know, my entire life, basically, it was really hard when I did have this like humorous part inside of me. That was always squelched, you know, it was always like tap down and like, oh, you're, you're being a little bit too, um, you know, up in everyone's faces. And I remember one time I, I took a, a microphone. This is, uh, this is after we were married. I was probably like 22 ish at this point. And I had put on a party with, um, you know, some friends or whatever for the whole group. Cause everyone was always invited to everything. You could never just have like your own party, but anyway, it was a party. And I remember I, I took the microphone at one point and like said, everyone needs to stand back. We were doing a pinata and I got in trouble for that because I like took the microphone and like took too much of an in charge role. And so my husband got talked to about that one. Uh, so, you know, just good time. So even when I would want to be funny, it was like, nope, 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 nope. You're okay. You're too funny. Now you need to, you needed to stop that. So it really did change. I feel like my personality as I grew up and then once we were out, it took years. You know, people talk about getting out and just like, oh, yay, you're out. And that's like the easy part. And then it's this whole, you know, learning and growing and changing and unlearning all of these things um, from my entire life. I was 31 when I got out and uh, it took up until about two years ago, really for me to be fully into myself, you know, and kind of slowly let parts of me out that I had been hiding for so long or was too nervous about. And even when I started, it's really funny because people ask, hey, "What does your husband think about what you do?" cuz now I do like funny videos and I really just, you know, I I just don't care what I put out there basically, you know. I I can take the criticism now. I I feel like, you know, I've been so well trained in how to uh to take on the criticism. So but my husband, people are like, does he like it? Like, does he think it's funny? You know, what does he think about this? And it's funny because I was really nervous when I started posting stuff. And this is years before COVID even, I was like doing it just for some friends. Like I had this small little Instagram account and I didn't want him to see him because like he had grown up the same way I did. And, you know, we were married in the cult and everything. And so I still felt like, even though he wouldn't criticize me, I still felt that nervous feeling from my husband, you know, who's like my best friend, but it was really weird and awkward until I got, you know, a little bit more comfortable with it. And then I'm like, I don't care what he thinks. And now he thinks it's amazing. So, you know, progression, it took, you know, it took a while, but, but that's where we're at now. And it's fabulous, but, but it took a while, you know, it took a while to feel comfortable in my own skin and, you know take on that negative criticism with uh the humor and turn it back around and and kind of realize okay I'm not living in my past anymore so I can I can take this criticism a little bit differently it's not it's not the same as it used to be you know
0: right i think also you know when you step into the world of social media and cyber relationships where there's a facelessness. I think people are emboldened to be cruel because they don't have to say it to your face. And you then don't have a way of knowing who's saying it to you and also what's going on in their life or what insecurities do they have (laughs) that they're putting on you. And so, yeah, I think it is so good to remember it's not about you, but it's it's hard to feel that but even growing up in a in a cultic group or any kind of fundamentalist group a lot of people feel that there's this watchful eye all the time and they don't feel it, but they know it, it is true. And people are reporting back. There's usually kind of a gossip culture about, you know, people being reported on and, uh, you get kind of points for reporting on people. So you are being watched and God is watching you and whatever the, the theology is, there's so much that I want to be able to come back to like when you were saying it started out innocently and then morphed that happens so often also that it doesn't have a name that your group doesn't have a name. One of the reasons that I started doing webinars or I started doing the podcast was because people had this sense that like, Hmm the Moonies or Unification Church was a cult and this is what they look like and this is how they dress. And so there were these definable things and names to watch out for. But really the point was to generalize it. At least my point was to generalize it and say, these are the things to watch out for. It might not come in this form and under this name. Could happen in a relationship, could happen at your work. So it doesn't matter what it's called. And the fact that it doesn't have a name, I think, is kind of perfect for that message. Cause it doesn't matter ultimately. Right. Yeah. And I, I don't think that
1: was their goal, but look, they just set us up for that.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Like, right. Yeah. yeah. So, so interesting. And I liked that your husband has made some, some cameos in some of your, yes. Videos, yeah. yes.
1: Lovely. Yeah. I'm like, it's been about a year. It's time for you to show up again. <laughs> exactly. <sighs>
0: Right. Uh, it's interesting also that people talk to him when you seem to be uh, unruly and not as controlled as you're supposed to be.
1: Well, that's how it worked. We were, the men were in charge. And so like growing up, my dad would be the one. And so it's either your dad or your husband. And we uh, it was called men's meetings. And so like all the men in the group would get together and decide, you know, what actions need to be taken, which was, Normally, you know, in the form of public humiliation and good stuff like that. but um, yeah, so the women were usually never involved with any of the any of the stuff like that. We always joked though that our file was very large at the leader's house. We're like, in our family, my family growing up, we were a tad bit rebellious or pretty rebellious for our group, I would say. So we always joked that our file was like like we had it down. Here's a great story though, about the watchful eye, like you were saying, and it's so true. And it's that, uh, I was actually just talking about this in therapy, but like that whole feeling of there's someone, even though there wasn't necessarily always someone watching you, you always felt that. And I can remember like the weird, like I was just talking therapy, Having the concept and even once we are out and even I'll still find myself thinking and it shows to me like how much we put the leaders, you know, it was always, we're supposed to be serving God, but I never felt that way. And this just to me shows how elevated our leaders were. But I would always think like, oh, if he saw me doing this right now, he would think I was doing, being such a good wife. And like these, and, and from childhood till we were gone, you know, like I said, even after we were gone. But always this, you know, going in my head of like, oh, well, if he saw me doing this, he would, I bet he would just think I was amazing and how elevated um, our leaders were in that way where we just viewed them as gods, basically, whether that's what they meant to do or not. That's how it was. Uh, but yeah, it's crazy. Oh, but, but a spying story we lived on in the country, we lived on uh, five acres And then two family members, we didn't live on like, um, like in a commune or anything, but we all lived near pretty close to each other, but we had, we were on five acres and then two families that were a part of our group were on the adjoining five acres. And one of them who was pretty high up and really shouldn't have been in our group lived kind of up the hill a little bit from us. But my sister and I, she's, uh, 18 months younger than me. We were hauling firewood from our garage up to our house. And in our, our sweatpants Ugh. and the leader from our neighbors, he turned us in for on our own property, hauling firewood. And the, this is the creepy part. The only way you could see like this part of our driveway was from the mass, uh, the master bedroom at his house. That's the only place you would have seen us doing. It. So that kind of stuff, I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like here we are minding our own business on our own property. And, you know, how dare we wear sweats to do chores? There's another file in the drawer for us right there.
0: Right. And it is true that women usually, to go to your frame of reference about files, they they often will, in religious organizations of any sort, have a longer file on them. They're kept more in check. They're, you know, always, and the men usually get away with nearly everything. Not everything, everything, but nearly everything. Uh, Only the leadership gets away with everything. And so, as you know, I'm wondering then, you know, there's this piece about being watched and especially from someone's master bedroom is beyond creepy, but also there's an interesting learning curve that happens when people get out where they decide they're going to do things no matter what, if they're being watched or not. And then there's this other piece, I think, which is, so let's say someone calls me out for this. All right. I'm not going to be publicly humiliated. I'm not going to be disconnected from the community. Like the punishment isn't going to be there in the same way. So maybe then the threat of it doesn't have to scare me as much because it'll ju- what, so I get called out. So mm, that just means it's Tuesday. Like nothing changes in my life, but I, I wonder just about the beginning and how it all started and you're saying it started your grandparents were involved from the beginning and it started out just as a group of people who were wanting to worship together
1: yeah like in-home bible studies basically they wanted to do like a non-denomination type group and so my understanding is that's what it started as both my parents were also born into it and were married within most people very few people came from the outside. It was usually just you're married within and then that's how it kind of grew. Uh, but yeah, but then it just turned into one of the main leaders who really was a big part of it falling apart. I guess when he was like in his thirties started just kind of taking over and getting more involved. And then by the time, you know, we left when I was 30, my thirties, you know, he was, I don't know, like 70 or something. And had placed himself at a very high position and and then that's kind of when it when so many of us left at one time and it fell apart but you know that took two generations years and years and years of this slow progression and ruined how many lives and you know in that whole whatever 60 years when he was in charge or whatever it would have been, ended up being but yeah like so so terrible it definitely changed a lot. You talk to people that were, you know, they're from the beginning and it's, it's, it's interesting. Very interesting.
0: Sometimes when there are different locations that a church or any group goes and meets and people's experience, I mean, first of all, from person to person within a cultic group, even in the same location is going to be different based on your gender, based on your age, based on your sensitivities, whatever it is. Also how much of a rebel you are, which I mean, the rebellious side is usually what helps people get out, but they're kind of so mistreated until that happens because the, you know that needs to be sort of beaten out of them. At least that's what the group thinks. Uh, so people have usually been through the ringer if they're independent thinking people, but even from location to location, your experience can be different based on who's in charge there. And so you see groups m- and morphing over time, as as you said, that it morphs based on the leadership and based on the control, the ego needs, all of it of the leader. And so what started to transform it into a group that was really unhealthy?
1: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the different locations, cause that's so true. And we definitely had a, a, quite a few different locations and that's kind of how you would meet more people as we would, we weren't allowed to celebrate any holidays. So during holidays, like Christmas, we would do camps and, uh, you would, we would met down in central California at fairgrounds. And so people from other locations, we would all meet together. So that's kind of how you got to know other people from other locations. And, you know, it brought into your search a little bit when you're looking for a spouse. And so, anyhow, so yes, that makes such a big difference. And it's very interesting talking now to different people that have also gotten out from different locations and kind of how our experiences did all vary quite a bit. But yeah, I think when it came to the power. So back in the 80s, when I was young, there was a the split of the 80s, we call it. And a bunch of people were marked at one time and marked was basically being excommunicated. And some of my family members were marked. And so it was a, I have a lot of memories surrounding that because one of my cousins was my best friend. And then all of a sudden he wasn't there. So it was really weird. Now we're all reconnected and it's lovely. So, so yeah, It but it turned out basically this one leader, Kind of just slowly started, just I, I don't even know how it happens, honestly, but it's just enough more control than everyone else basically to take over. And there was a group of what I would call like leadership, men in leadership that all played a part of this big mess and continuing it on because you had your like leadership man, uh, minister in each location. And then what happened is like the main guy, ended up coming to our location because he married someone after both their spouses had passed away in our location. And so then that's when we were like, Oh, this is a whole nother ballgame too. And we didn't have a great location leader anyway. It was super weird and creepy, but this made it a whole, a whole nother level. And really what happened, it's just like the rules got stricter and it was just really weird. Like it was all about the control. Looking back now, it's easy to see like, this is so weird. Like this is now, you know, it's easy to be like, why would we have stayed? But you know, you're, you've you lived in it your whole life. And I think about like, I can't sit here and blame my parents because they lived in it, you know, twice as long as I did. And, you know, again, once you get out and you can look back and be like, wow, that's crazy. We spent 30 years in there. But, uh, you know, you don't know know
0: what you know, till you know it. So that's uh, right. That is right. I've done some videos recently with the title. Why did I stay? Uh, and it's about people in relationships and people in abusive workplaces, people in cultic groups, what propelled me to feel like I didn't have a choice, um, that it would be making the biggest mistake or that it would be a sign of weakness what fears was I instilled with about the outside world or about myself uh, not being able to trust myself so I needed the control of the group or the leader? There's hundreds of reasons. And I, I would hope also from hearing people's stories that that is something that people wrestle with, but I don't want people to judge themselves for it. The, the environment creates that, that you kind of forget that's an option or it's not a viable option.
1: Yeah. You don't think it's an option really. I mean, and you know what? I remember when I would have been like 17, we basically got married straight out of high school. That was just kind of what you did. You just, you know, reached that age and then you got married. And my sister and I both, you know, knew we were going to, who we were going to marry already. And I remember sitting down with my parents, my dad, I remember, and him saying, because things were just getting so weird and bad, like just, we hated it. And he said, we can leave now but you'll never see the guys again. And I knew I was marrying my husband from the time I was 12 years old. So you already love this person. You have this connection with this person. Probably that shouldn't have been put on us anyway, to be our decision, but it was true. It's like, yeah, we could take off now and leave, but we'll never ever see them again. Like, And that's what kept you in. That was the biggest thing that kept you in was, and they were your only friends. You didn't have an outside community of friends. Like, We went to public school. Not everyone did, but you still didn't have friends at public school. You were not allowed to go to birthday parties, no sports, nothing. So your only friends are this group of people. So with that threat of being marked excommunicated as a big threat, you know, that's your whole, everyone, you know, everyone, you know, is there.
0: Right. How interesting. So, I mean, knowing at 12 who you're going to be marrying, that isn't necessarily something on most people's minds. It is sometimes in different parts of the world. And in other cultures, but you don't hear it a lot. And also, yeah, you went to public school, but it sounds like you couldn't be really open about your life. So, how did you handle any interactions where people said, Hey, how you doing? Where do you live? Like where they seem to be inquiring about you.
1: Uh, you know, it was it was our whole life, so it's see, I don't know exactly like when the question started, but I was really heavily bullied in school because we did dress weird, we had to have long skirts and, you know, sleeved shirts. We couldn't cut our hair. We couldn't wear makeup. So there were a lot of, you know, outwardly, you know, obvious things that were different about us. So I remember probably it would have been around like fifth grade. I remember my friends at school saying, well, you can't just be a Christian. Like you're different. You're not just a Christian. So they like named us new Christians. So they were just like, they're, oh yeah, they're, so if someone knew were to ask, they'd be like, oh yeah, Shannon's a new Christian. That's why she dresses that way. And I'd be like, okay. I was so insecure because I was so bullied. I hated how we dressed. I was very self-conscious and just an extremely, extremely insecure child. And so we didn't handle it well. And I mean, we didn't do anything public. I mean, we did go to like public things, but it was always, and I remember being embarrassed and I don't know that everyone was this way. Or if it was because I was bullied and made fun of that I was aware to be embarrassed. But like when all of us girls would like go to the mall together, you know, we have eight to 10 of us basically all look like we're matching because we're all wearing like the same stuff. It was embarrassing. Like it was, I did not like it. I didn't like going out in public. I didn't, and I don't know what age that started, but I did not, I knew we were weird. You know, I'm like, we are different. We stand out and we would do, (laughs) we laugh now, but we would do things. We used to go, and again, we didn't celebrate any hallways. We would go holidays. We would go to the airport. This is, of course, a long time ago. And go hang out in the lobby area of the airport, like by the luggage bag things, where all these weary travelers that are traveling for Thanksgiving are coming and going. And we would sing hymns. So like huge group of us, we look pretty outrageous. And we're all bundled up together singing hymns. And like, I just remember that being very embarrassing. Like, what if I see a friend from school that recognizes us? And so it was very, it was very awkward, but we did, we did not have like enough friendships or I guess where it mattered when they questioned, I would just say, oh, it's a church thing. Like, in which we weren't even supposed to say church, but I'm sure I did.
0: Wow, It's hard being a teenager anyway. Oh, uh. yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't have the perfect haircut, even what does that right. mean? Right. Uh, right. As an adult, you're realizing how ridiculous that all is. And everyone has to be cookie cutter. But I'm sure it did help a little, even though, of course, you didn't want to be standing there in your prairie dresses or whatever. Else. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it probably would have been harder if you were there by yourself. And so there's sometimes strength in numbers that you could be part of a group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you could hide and know that you weren't alone in this. How interesting. You were saying that it became more strict and there were more rules. Also, what were the newer rules? I guess it wasn't even necessarily new
1: rules. It was just more of us started questioning things. And what really for me changed was becoming a mom. So we had gone through years of infertility and ended up adopting our son, which on that whole thing, like the infertility, I felt the whole time that God was um, punishing me for doing wrong. So that's just another level of trauma, you know, that now I can look and say, oh yeah, that was a traumatic experience and you didn't get outside help. So you weren't in therapy. You, unless you wanted to go talk to a leader, you know, which was not an option. That was it. You didn't have help really and all of our relationships were so superficial so people always were like oh well at least you had like a bunch of really close people it wasn't that way we knew everything about everyone and so i think you you held back so much because you're afraid of people finding out so like even my infertility stuff i just swerved through that with no no help no no support i mean it was it was awful it was really awful but anyway we adopted our son and And we had a lot of traumatic experiences through the whole adoption experience, but he, uh, he's what changed me personally, because I'm, my biggest thought was I have to raise this child and I'm going to lie to him about a lot of stuff because I don't believe a lot of this stuff that I'm sitting in, you know, and that got harder and harder for me to be okay with. And you know he was young he was a baby and so I'm I'm processing this he was uh like 3 when we got out but I'm you know for years I was thinking this like I don't want it. when he gets older and I say you can't wear shorts or you can't play sports or whatever with the boys I'm like I don't feel good about this like I don't support it so why how can I just say that to him so anyway that was a big push for me and then a lot of the other friends in our age uh are like our generation started questioning more things. And, you know, cause as the world is changing, we're like, okay, is there some things that our group can change? Like in the nineties, like mid to late nineties, we started wearing skirts, like right below the knee. So we were able to like, kind of be a little bit more in style and have, so that was kind of exciting, but we were wanting more, you know? And like, we all did church or meetings as a group together. So there was never childcare. There was never, you know, Sunday school, nothing, nothing like that. So my friend and I were like, let's do a Sunday school in the back. Like, I'm tired of this. Like, our kids are crazy. Like, I don't, this is awful. I, and my kid was not going to sit in meetings. So, so we decided we're going to just get like coloring pages, whatever. And whoever wanted to be a part could. And there's this little room we met in like Grange halls and there's this little room in the back. So we're like, we can just do a little something there. We couldn't even start that before it got shut down because someone found out about it. And so like shit like that over and over and over again was what really ended up being the downfall because he would not be open to any. And then like pants, ladies wearing pants, you know, stuff like that. We started like bringing up more for our, my entire life. I was been told it's because of modesty issues. And then as an adult, I'm like, how is it more modest to be playing baseball in a skirt, running around at camp time in my skirt when I fall than in a pair of, you know, loose fitting jeans. And it was just, Stuff like that, you know. So it's just I think enough of us started pushing where we're like, This is we're done, like this is ridiculous. And they started marking people right and left because so many people were pushing the bounds. And then we're kind of like, Okay, well, half my friends are marked now, and I am gonna hang out with them because I don't care. So that kind of took that whole marking thing off the board because no one cared anymore. So and it ended up just kind of falling apart, and they're still people that, that still are parts of it, but um, like my husband's parents are still in, but my whole, my whole entire family is out. So that's awesome. My husband has a lot of family in still like aunts and uncles and extended family.
0: So that's yeah. really hard. So tell me about that, about what relationship, if any, he's able to have with the people in, or that your kids are able to have with them.
1: So all of his extended family that's still in doesn't have any contact with us at all. The only family that does are his parents. And they, we see them, I mean, maybe like once a year they'll come and visit and they will visit. It's just, uh, it's super awkward. It's which it always has been with them. I've never just had like a fabulous relationship with them and they haven't with any of their kids either. They, they just, they just don't, it's very awkward, but it's definitely, to me, it's like, at least it's there. My kids can know their grandparents. They don't know them well. Like every time they come, it's like, they're calling them the wrong names. And I'm just like, no guys, you call her Grammy, you know, (laughs) that's her name. And so they don't know them well, but it's like, I'm like, you know, what? at least they can see them and talk to them. And we have enough, you know, stand in grandparents in my kids' lives that I feel so blessed with that I'm like, you know what, that's, it just makes me sad that that's their choice. Your choice is to have basically no relationship with your family members and to still be like they're, they're, they're definitely more prone to like get to the nearest camp than to see us first. So it's that we don't feel prioritized at all. Like, it's like, well, this is where we're at. And, and I would never like have my kids be alone with them or anything like that, just because. I never know what they're going to say if, and I mean, I don't think they would, you know, purposely they've gone to the place. They know that we're not changing back now, but you know, for a while it was touch and go where I'm like, I don't even think we're going to be hanging out with them, but it's fine for now.
0: I mean, it is disappointing when you see that someone's belief system takes precedence over their relationship and closeness and accessibility to their family. And you feel like you're being looked at still through the lens of the group. That's hard not to be fully seen for who you are.
1: Yeah. You don't expect it. At this point, you they avoid anything good that we have to say about any of our life that's good now. Like they all they do is talk about people from our past and we're like, we don't know those people. Like we've been out for 11, 12 years now. We don't know who you're talking about. But it is. It's sad. I just I'm sad for them really too. It's like, are okay, are you really happy? Like that's always my thing. I'm like, okay, if you're really happy, then great. But are you? And and from a young age too, it's sad, like you were saying, that disconnect from family and putting like group over family. That's how we were raised. Even though you lived with your family and you maybe had a little bit of relationship, I think a majority of the families didn't really have family relationships because meetings were first. And so you followed the rules. You did everything. It was priority to be at everything. If you weren't, we did Wednesday night, Friday nights, and Sundays, and if you didn't show up, some someone would call you and be like, oh, what's going on? Are you sick? What's, why aren't you here? So it was priority to be there. And so, yeah, so I feel like they just kind of have continued with that. And so it's just natural to still put that first. So it's no different
0: for them now. And, you know, there's this idea um, that was crafted among a lot of other ideas by Robert J. Lifton, who was an expert on undue influence and manipulation. And he has this term doctrine over person where the doctrine takes precedence what's also interesting is to think about people who stay and to wonder why going back to the question why did you stay there are people who just say this is my life i i don't know if i'm able really to start in the world, a world that really is unfamiliar to me and not quite sure how to function within it. And also some people have become too afraid of leaving because they're going to get God's punishment, et cetera. And it's so ironic because the people who leave are seen as weak a lot of the time, but often they're the ones who are strong and brave and are pushing through the fear and walking through the fire to get to that place of freedom. And that takes an inordinate amount of bravery and strength. I wonder going back to this infertility and, and it sounds, I mean, it's hard enough to have that, but then to be told or to have this impression that it's God's punishment, adding insult to injury, like a woman who's raped. And then she's asked, well, you know, what were you wearing? Really? So it sounds like you didn't get compassion in the same way. And you also didn't get good guidance and advice. And just the fact that you had to go through that really on your own, even though, you know, you had your husband, but basically on your own. And that was sure was very hard. It was.
1: And, you know, it's funny because I've liked to like say my whole life, I'm a strong, you know, awesome person. I can handle everything. And yet because of that personality, I've also... Pushed down a lot of trauma in my life and said like, well, other people have experienced much worse, and so really, like, I'm super lucky and all these things. And now, you know, doing some pretty intense therapy. She's like, yeah, so so complex trauma is a, is something we're going to be talking about. And it, so it's been validating getting the the essential help that I was didn't have for so long. And you know, it, but it's a lot of work, like you just said, like it is and it like, it is a lot of work. And so I understand why some people stay stuck because it's not easy to do what I'm doing right now, as far as like true recovery and, but it's been worth it. You know, it's so amazing. And like, I really truly am like so much happier and just feel like, oh, this is me. You know, like I am sorting through life, figuring out who I am at 40 years old. You know, it's, it's crazy, but it really is. It's true. I haven't ever known. And, and two, my husband and I, I've never been my own person. It was me and my family and then me and my husband. So my husband and I never had a chance to be our own people. It was, it's always been us. So we've had to be, be, we've done a lot of work together as well. But then separately, and we're really realizing that need for, you know. I and I always like, I'm not a codependent person, I'm not codependent at all. I'm super like, I got everything together. And then I'm like, oh, oh, wow. Oh, hi. I am codependent. So, learning so much, it's like, but being our own people has been a huge learning curve for us, but so essential and necessary that it's been life-changing for our marriage, for raising our, being a parent. So many aspects of my life. I'm just like, oh my gosh, like all this, it takes so much freaking work, but it's been, it's been so worth it. Learning just who I am, who I am. I'm like, you know, I, it's scary to be 40 and
0: someone's like, what's your favorite thing
1: to do? And you're like,
0: oh, I don't know. Right. So I mean, I not that this is to um you know, diminish what you're saying in in at all, but I do have clients in their 70s, 80s who are starting in starting their lives really for the first time and so yeah, it is hard at 40. it's hard really at any age, but it's really nice that you've had an opportunity to get started and that you're progressing with it. and I like the idea that you're finding out that, You know, your identity is not being the wife or being the something else to someone else. And that is really interesting to work on a relationship, but also work on you within your own life and then within that relationship and that you are your own person and that you can be different. But there, I think, you know, these these groups are so they foster so much codependency and people are boundaryless and intertwined.
1: So much. I did not realize how much, but yeah, a lot, like very, very, very sad. And, you know, even just like when we got out, you know, you think, Oh yay, we're out. We were lost. We had no outside friends. We didn't, we've kind of, you know, had the impression that pretty much, even though we weren't comfortable and we're happy to be out, we still felt like everyone else is bad, you know, like, so who can we, who can we be friends with who churches were bad? Everything was bad. And so it took a long time. Like, I want to say it took like three or four years for us to get our first like two foot Christmas tree and, you know, slowly get into like, what's okay. What's, you know, what's going to have God striking us down from heaven immediately or what, what is, you know, Is the Christmas tree going to light the house on fire or will we be okay? So it was a lot of process of, of what is okay, what we wore, all these things. It was just a long, you know, like I said, I think it's an 11, 12 years now of getting to finally the place where it's like, okay. And then there's me, like, this is me. This is me figuring out who I am it wasn't just overnight where it's like, oh, yay, here we go. This is the person I want to be. I wish it would have been that way, but it was not.
0: No. And I, I think also with how bold it is and good it is, I think that you get a two-foot Christmas tree or whatever yes. size it is, but that you claim something for yourself and get to enjoy it, get to enjoy something that you had been made, I think, afraid of participating in. But then you have this whole other piece which is the false correlation. Like, let's say it did catch fire. So then there would be this automatic trained assumption that it's a sign, God's punishment. So knowing, taking sort of what you see in front of you and not ascribing that kind of meaning to it, I'm sure it takes a lot of work too.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I think, I think even small things, because, you know, it's like we were in our thirties and just like, drinking. We drank for the first time, like all these things that we had never experienced. And so it was, it was like trying to figure out like, and then too, like with my husband's, it's a little better now because it's been so long, but my husband's family had was still in. And so there was a lot of like uh, uneasiness about, and they lived locally still back then. It was like so uneasy and like, oh, well, what if there was a group here still? So it was like, what if I'm out and so-and-so sees me in pants, even though it doesn't matter because I'm not a part of that anymore. You still have this internal like fear of, but they can't see me in pants, you know? And so uh, that lasted quite a while, like actually surprising, like years of where being nervous, running into people in public and even just wearing pants in public was a weird thing. Cause you felt like, oh my gosh this feels wrong. No one else is looking at me like I'm a crazy person, but I feel very wrong right now. It was a long time, but yeah.
0: A lot of people are worried about running into the people from the group. And one of the things that I talked about that did these recent webinars and one of the questions that came in was what if I run into someone from the group and, and I'm getting the look over from head to toe and that kind of, mm, that look on their face where they're disapproving because that's going to be all too familiar and and you want to avoid that. But I've I've talked to enough people over the years who were the ones who were still in, who would run into someone who was out and they would have this automatic judgment because that's what they were trained to have. But there was still a part of them inside that wished they could do that too. And it was interesting. Like here, these people who I was told were going to be living dismal lives if they left actually seem really fine and in fact happy. So what does that mean? And maybe I could have some of that one day. So I think people don't realize how much of um, of an impact they're making on the people still in just by virtue of being fine. I think it's a very powerful thing. I want to be able to talk about the day that you left and what that was like. I'm sure it's a long time ago, so I don't know. It might be hard to remember all the details. And then talking about parenting and coming back to something you said at the beginning. But So what was that like the day that you left and how did you do it?
1: So it wasn't even just so much as leaving it was kind of a slow progression because we so we had meetings on Fridays Friday nights Wednesday nights and Sundays so you were kind of always at these three things and what happened i i really quit going before my husband and again he had family and so it's a whole different thing for him but i my parents had quit going so they just quit going to meetings basically and during this time there was just a lot of upheaval going on people were you know we were quest- doing a lot of questioning answers weren't getting Uh, we're basically getting rejected. And so people like my parents just quit going basically. And that's kind of how it happened is just little by little people quit. And so for us, like I quit going to like Wednesday nights because Dakota, my son was little and I'm just like, I'm tired of this. This is too much work with him. You know, it starts at seven o'clock at night. And so, or seven 30 anyway, too late for kids. And We so I kind of quit going to those and then it was just kind of probably over months of just like going less and less and less and less. And then finally we were done. We just didn't go again. And so it was more, it wasn't just like it wasn't like we told people, like, oh, we're not. I mean, I'm sure my husband had to tell his parents at some point, like, I'm not coming back, but we, we just quit going. And it was sad because you didn't even have close enough friendships where it mattered. And that's what was weird. I mean, and I had some like girlfriends that I was friends with, but I look now and I am I'm not connected with. I mean, there's a couple like more. Like, I have one in Texas that I'll always be really connected with. But it's sad to like look back and think, I wasn't leaving anything. Like it, nothing mattered. It wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna miss so and so or like crying over like it was just like I'm tired of this. This is ridiculous. And so it wasn't sad. It was just like okay, good. We're out and we're done. And then we had to of course start like the healing journey and all of that which we had no clue about or no resources until recently really you know so it was not like we had something to jump into
0: as far as healing no okay so so turning to even though i i know that your your whole life is not just about being a parent but it is important to you and you worked hard to get there uh and so tell us a little bit about you as a parent now really in this juxtaposition to how you were raised and the models that you had around you. Yes. So basically I
1: am the one that is swinging like almost the other direction completely with how I'm raising my kids and not like, I still, I still believe in God, which I look back and I'm like, I don't know that I ever did believe in God the way I was growing up because I believe God to be like a gentle, loving person. And that's not how we were raised with them. It was all, you know, Oh, whatever fire and hell and all the things. And so I, so I do have a belief in God and I am raising my children, you know, that I have that belief, but I really want my children to be their own person. You know, there's, there's so, I never knew who I was as a kid. I had so many crazy thoughts. So we are so open with our kids. We talk, everything. Um, I have nine, I think I mentioned it, but nine, 10 and almost 15 year old kiddos. And we talk about everything. I think partially just the world we live in. We have to do that with our kids uh, because I want them feeling comfortable coming to me if anything comes up versus, you know, reaching out to someone dangerous. So we're really proactive with things like that. And even placing other, um, not placing, but we have other adults in our lives that we trust and letting our Kids be aware of other adults that we trust in our lives to have those people because we just we didn't have resources like that. And I love it because, like my my daughter, these hormones, you know, I guess it's starting early and earlier now, but oh my gosh, the attitudes and the drama that these girls have going on. But we have this fabulous woman in our life who's this amazing mentor for the girls. And she asked me, like, can I talk to so and so about. issues I'm having at school. And I'm like, yes, sweetie, that's, that's, you can definitely go talk to her. And so, so it's been really good, like having, she still wanted to make sure with me, but she, um, to have these other, you know, trusted people in our lives because, because life's scary out there, but just like in, in small little things with the girls, how they dress is outrageous. They dress themselves. They never match. And for a long time, my husband would like get home from work or something, he'd be like, "Did they go to school like that?" And I'm like, "Yes." And 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 part of it is like, obviously, it's a parent, like it's our job to train our kids. Like, oh, hey, this matches this. This doesn't. But after I feel like I put a lot of hours into that, and they just don't care, then guess what? I don't either. But I I love like I try to picture what their little brains are thinking. And I was at ten years old, obsessed. I was so insecure that it was like, if the little black duck on my shirt didn't match the black on my skirt, exactly the right color black, I wouldn't wear it. Like I was so obsessed at 10 years old. I was just so insecure. So I love it. I'm like, Oh, you look, you know, they'll like, do I match? Nope. You sure don't, but you can wear it. Like, and so it's little, it's little things like that, that seem silly. But to me, it is a conscious thing that I think about. It's like, if that's what they're comfortable in, then great. You just wear that. And, and definitely raising, um, yeah, kids in this generation, it's a whole different thing, raising them with this technology and everything, um, versus how I was raised, but just definitely raising them with a lot more love. And like, I do feel like my parents were loving, you know, I feel very thankful for how I was raised within my home, but it's still, it definitely was impacted their parenting because of the group we were in, you know, whether they were good parents or not, it was still impacted by this group. So I definitely am very conscious of parenting my children a lot differently. And I love it. I let I feel like it's an honor, the opportunity to parent kids and, and it's not easy. I have two of my three are really, really, really challenging children. And so it's, it's a lot, a lot of work to parent them, uh, but it's worth it, you know? And it's like, I want, I want to have a relationship with my kids when they're adults. And I know right now I can't be their best friend. Like I am their mom right now, but I look forward to that. I, I think I want that different than how it is for my husband and I with our parents. I just, that's what I look, I want, you know? And so I'm like, I have to give them some freedom and, you know let them kind of live their life a little bit if they don't want to match it's not the end of the world you
0: know uh, <laughs> i mean i i was raised with you know having a family where things needed to be appropriate you always needed to be appropriate and i remember my oldest who's now in his 20s but as a teenager saying i will, i really want to get um blue around the bottom of my hair and um and I said, no, 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 because I had this sense that that was just a very wrong thing. Uh, and finally, I started seeing it around me and these were still good kids. They weren't suddenly felons, <laughs> just because they had a different color hair. And But I do remember there is, um, I guess once you get your hair dyed a really bright color, you have to wait a few days before you wash it and then still be careful the first time you wash it. And I remember after the first time he washed it, after I said, okay, to blue hair, Meanwhile, I still a model citizen and good person, right. And an honest, whatever, not in jail. And he took a shower and then came out and said, you might want to just wait a bit. (laughs) Let me clean that up before you go. I said, why? He said, because it's a little disturbing. I said, why is it disturbing? He said, because it looks like a Smurf was murdered in the shower. (laughs) So just give me a sec. so, yeah, so there are there are the appearance pieces and then there's the when you said that your two of your kids are more difficult to parent, how not to be punitive about that and mm-hmm. how not to come down on them but how to understand them and how to give them that sense that you you see them for who they are and love them in all of their still wonderfulness and I'm sure you're encouraging them to be individuals and to question. So how do you deal just because so much of the behavioral management gets modeled in this very punitive way. So yeah. how have you been able to move away from that? It's hard. I mentally,
1: I have to stop myself in my brain so much before I act or before I talk because I it is so ingrained. I think that's one of the hardest things is I have to stay so overly conscious of you do not want to parent this way. And, but, and too, like, we're all human. Right. And so like, I make mistakes. I might, you know, I'm not a screamer, but I might, you know, raise my voice more than is necessary at a certain time. My biggest thing is I apologize to my kids. So if I raise my voice, I apologize to my kids. I don't know that I was ever apologized to for sure. My husband wasn't. And I feel like it. And then we usually try to have a conversation around it. Like, you know, this isn't appropriate. Mommy should not have done that. I shouldn't have said that, whatever. I just, I try to make it into a learning opportunity as like, see mommy, mommy screws up too. You know, like remember yesterday when you did it and you know, see, I do the same thing. And so try to make it like we're all human and and try to take away that punitive side, like you said, where, but let me tell you, it's hard. It's not like I'm perfect at it by any means, but I am conscious about it that I really don't want, you know, a mistake that a child makes to be, you know, determining what they are or who they are. It's, it's not, it's just a little bleep in the day. And then we move on and, you know, and hopefully they, they learn something from it. And it's not like we just let our children do whatever they want. We definitely parent and guide them and have rules in the house and stuff, but it's, it's a whole lot different than, than
0: how we were raised a whole lot different. Yeah. With my oldest, he had strong opinions and I think he was saying something that I thought wasn't being as sensitively administered <laughs> to his sibling. And I just said, just go, just go. We were at the dinner table. I said, just go. And, but the, I was raised with that. So like people were banished to their, whatever, to their room. And he was so surprised and I was surprised too, because I thought, where did that come from? I didn't even recognize it in myself. And he stopped and he said, go where? I said, I don't know. I actually don't know why I just said that. Hang on. Like, wait, sit down. Cause I have to figure out like who, what, who was I channeling just now and what, and how does that resolve anything? Uh, But I, I was happy. He was surprised by it. That means it really didn't happen before, but still, I didn't even know why I said it. So yeah, I think it's keeping yourself in check, but I wonder also a lot of people talk about being raised in certain environments where they weren't given an opportunity to be kids there wasn't that allowance for like it's okay if you spill it's okay if you don't know it's okay if you squirm and so how were kids treated in your group
1: i feel like like again in my home i do feel like i was able to be a kid so i feel like we lived on the country in the country on a lot of property and so i I loved animals and nature. So I was outside. I was a loner kind of, I'd be outside a lot by myself with my animals. Uh, but I do feel like I had the opportunity to be a kid. And then as far as like, as a group, as a whole, I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily think it was like, as far as like, if you spill something, it would be bad, but it was definitely like spanking was encouraged, you know, what they called spanking and wasn't always spanking. Yeah. So, and I mean now just to even think back on that, I'm like, Ooh, that's disturbing. Cause you would, people would go out during meeting and like spank their kids for probably squirming or talking or being loud in meeting where we're expected, you know, three-year-olds to sit still for, and I can't, I couldn't do that now. I could not do that now. So
0: I, I don't know how, and it wasn't
1: like it was short meetings.
0: So how long were they on average? Think?
1: I think Sundays were 10 to 12. So it'd be like two hours. So you'd sing some songs and then, you know, the minister would talk. And then Friday night, Friday nights were like fun nights. So we were like gatherings, we called them. And so we would just like get together, potluck gatherings. And then Sundays were probably two hours. And then we would usually like hang out all day Sundays. But camp meetings, camp meetings were so freaking long. Like they could go to like two in the morning. It was never like you knew how long they would go. They would just go. And same thing, kids are like falling asleep on the ground on blankets at camps for sure because it was, they would always go so long. It was awful, awful. And and we met at the fairgrounds. This is so, so fun. We met at the fairgrounds. And so during the 4th of July, the fireworks were going off literally right outside the building where we would have meetings. And we're all in meetings while the fireworks are going off outside. So you can even hear what was going on inside, but we're just going to sit there and we're going to wait for them to be over. We're not going to go enjoy them. That's good times. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention too. This is like my favorite thing. My oldest is one of my real challenging children. And here's the, here's my, my best, my best piece of advice for parenting, accept help because I did not obviously grow up that way. And I always think I'm so strong. I can handle everything. I chose to be a mom. I can handle these kids and you know, maybe not. So accepting help is okay. And we really had to figure that out and go through a lot of different things. You lots of therapy for everyone in the house. But anyway, accepting help. But this is one of my favorite things I've ever done with my kids. And it really proved to be very important when we were having especially challenging times with my oldest. But I just have a cheap Dollar Tree composition notebook for each of my kiddos. And we write notes back and forth to each other. So there were definitely times, or still are, where I can't have a conversation because of the child. It's just not a good thing to do at the moment. But I always, if we have a really rough day or a really rough situation, I always will write in the journal and leave it in the room that night with just a sweet little note, some kind of connection with them to let them know, you know, like, even though we didn't talk about it, because sometimes it's just not, um, it doesn't work with him just to let him know like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. And now that he's older. I'm like, he doesn't write back so often anymore, but I'm like, okay, now I require you on my birthday. You have to write back in the journal to me so that you have to, but it's really cute. But Mike, they all love it. And I've been doing it ever since they could like write back, basically, even like, you know, first grade probably is when I started it. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes. It's like my favorite thing. It's just like a nonverbal, non-confrontational way to connect. If there's like a heated moment that can't like, be taken care of in that moment. So I, I, I love, love that. that. Like my favorite thing. I'm sure I heard
0: it somewhere. I have no clue. But I a couple of years ago I wrote a, uh, it's a children's book, mostly illustrated book about divorce. But the the parents are not mentioned or or well, they're mentioned as parents, but there isn't any depiction of them. So that it could be for kids from all different constellations of families, uh, because the the gender doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a a foster parent or if it's a grandparent or, you know, these are, this is your parental unit. And I put a journal in the back so that people, it's interesting, so that kids could write about what they wanted. And also a year later after the divorce, what they wish they had had that, that, that they realized they needed or what they are grateful that they got. And for parents to also write to their kids about what they are going to take into consideration, or be really sensitive about, or try to do, or provide, because there is this really nice thing about being able to express yourself, and also it's. I love that your kids get to hold on to this; that they get to always then see your words. I also love it. Because it's such a good idea because sometimes in the moment it's too hard to talk about things. There's too much emotion. So after the dust has settled and you get to express yourself and then people can take in what you're saying more easily also. How interesting. I love it.
1: Exactly that. And I have very like high emotions too. And when we were in the heat of stuff with our son, things have cooled off a little bit now, but I would have to keep myself in check so much with the emotions. And so there were a lot of situations where we, I would have to walk away, let it die down. And then I could always write in the journal that night.
0: That's so good. I mean, I think your kids are really benefiting from you being intentional in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Really thinking. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, it's again, it doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean calling yourself on things or being willing to apologize from again, doing this work for many years. People will remember the one time they heard a parent say, I'm sorry, or the fact that they never heard it. It really leaves this indelible mark. And it's a yeah, it really is like this watershed moment for a lot of people when they hear it. And parents are sometimes afraid to say it, or they were raised saying they're not supposed to, because it's a sign of weakness or whatever else. You're the parent. You're right. Right. Exactly. Right. So I want, just as we're kind of wrapping it up today, and I know we'll talk again, but you started by saying that you, you needed to spend a lot of time unlearning things. And so I wonder even just like with a top three list, what are some of the things that you feel like you you've really benefited from unlearning, maybe even things that were hard to unlearn, but you realized you needed to in order to live a good or happy life or feel good about yourself. First of all, parenting.
1: I've taken so many parenting classes. We've been involved in, and our kids are all adopted. So it, t- it takes on another form too of education as far as parenting goes. But that was something I never thought I would ever need help with. You know, like, I'm great. I always had the best dogs ever. They were so well-trained. And I'm like, I'm going to be the best parent. And so really like opening myself up to, I want to be a different parent, like we just talked about. And that was huge. And unlearning all of the ways to not be the parent that I don't want to be. So that was huge. And then I think my perception of God was a big life-changing thing for me. Because I had learned for, you know, my whole life what God was. And I don't feel like when I look back, I really ever had a relationship with God, like, which is what was preached, you know, our relationship with God and all of this. But we were also preached He was such a, you know, I never remember hearing about the loving God. It was the angry. And if you do this wrong and, you know, God wants this, so you better be punished. So I feel like kind of unlearning and, you know, churches were all bad. So we slowly like dipped our toes in and went to a couple different churches, but it never just felt right. Or I don't know. I just, and even now today, I still like, I call it like the churchy lingo. Like there's a lot of things that, that still, I don't love today, but we found a church that we absolutely love. The kids love it. And it's, it's much more open-minded, let's say, than maybe your, your normal uh, Christian church. It works for me. So for as long as it works for me, I will go, I enjoy it. I like what I hear. I like what I see, but I'm very conscious of what I hear and see too. And I don't like, I won't do memberships. I won't do like anything that's required. Like I I just, I'm very turned off by that. So that's been great, but not even just the church aspect, but the true like belief in God and my spirituality. And I think that's taken on a whole, um, yeah. Unlearning process of what I learned and kind of the differences. Yeah. So I think those two things are big. And then, I mean, there's so many things, so many things. I think just personally, you know, just what I think about myself, I've had like so many thoughts in my brain, my whole life on who I am, what I'm supposed to do, and just kind of almost having to discard them all and relearn, but it's hard. It's like in your brain. So it is a process And again, I think my therapist um, validating it with complex as that I have complex trauma. It it was very validating because I was like, I, like I said, I always pushed it aside. Like people, you know, other people have it so much worse. I'm so lucky and that's great. But also, you know, our, our trauma is our trauma and it's still valid. So I like that word discard. Like a lot of it just not, did not need to be unlearned. It needed to just be discarded, but it's you know, easier said than done.
0: (laughs) It is easier, especially when it's automatic. Like if something doesn't go your way, well, what did I do wrong? Or maybe I'm not deserving of this. And to catch yourself, I think that's probably the biggest challenge (laughs) is suddenly when you're cascading into feeling down about something, it's good to wonder why that just happened. What did you say to yourself? That's probably not accurate, but has been so ingrained where you punish yourself, I mean, you sort of, you learn to gaslight yourself really in a lot of these situations, like, well, I don't deserve, you know, why can't I have nice things sort of thing. So anything else you want to impart? I mean, in terms of your, yourself, what's helped with your healing, what you do with your kids. I love the journal idea. I hope people steal it.
1: You know what? I mean, I think just to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, humor, you know, humor has been such a big, important aspect of my healing And letting myself fully fill my humorous parts, I think it's been exciting for my kids to be able to see that in me in the last couple of years and to see that it makes me happy to make other people happy and to laugh about, you know, everything, you know? And so I think it's been, and I feel like I'm still in the middle of of figuring that part of me out. But I think, oh, it's kind of fun for my kids, even though I wish I, you know, could have figured this out years ago. It's fun for them to be old enough to remember like me becoming a happy person, you know? So I think it's um yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting.
0: Oh, I'm yeah. so glad. That's a lovely way to end that your kids have been able to see you become a happy person. I'm very happy. That's a really, really nice thing. So this is really nice to get to know you and to hear about where you are in your journey and how you've made it this far and where else you're going to be going. It is really good to dig into this. It's not easy, but it is good so that you feel like you're turning a corner and not kind of schlepping in all of the stuff and carrying that weight with you that is unnecessary and that you can do more discarding, which is a really, really good liberating way of lightening yourself. So to be continued, but it was a total pleasure. Thank you so much. So much fun. Thank you so much for having me. I could just talk with you forever.
1: It's so wonderful.
0: One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Shannon. Shannon is great to talk to. And she has such an interesting story and has turned it into something so nice for her now in her life, where she gets to enjoy having her own sense of self and expressing herself in her own unique way and with a sense of humor There is something really powerful about being able to express yourself and use a sense of humor. As we talked about, most groups are humorless. I find that there are a lot of parents, a lot of people who will say to me, I realized something was off, something was different about my loved one who got involved in something like this. I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. And then when I started thinking about it, I realized they just seemed tense and intense. Like they had lost their sense of joy and they had lost their sense of humor. There's something really uniquely individualistic about having a sense of humor. It's yours. It's your way of looking at things. It's the thing that kind of tickles you, that makes you feel like you can enjoy life or that you can see things in a new way, in another way. But within a controlled environment, that's never allowed. You have to see things the way you were told to see them. And that is the only right way, according to the group. I've worked with kids who were raised in different controlled environments, a lot of Bible-based cultic groups, where they were punished for playing. They were punished for laughing. They were punished for imagining. They were punished for dreaming. They were punished for doing the things that our brain wants us to be able to do, that our brain naturally does. But those things lead us into who we are, into our individual and separate way of looking at things, into our own interpretation of things, into a fantasy realm also, which is usually never quite allowed within a Bible-based cult, even though You are supposed to imagine that God is talking to you or that you can talk to God, Uh, whether or not you believe that to be true. Still, you're supposed to have a great sense of knowing when you're dealing with things that are invisible. But still, for whatever reason, you can't imagine things and you can't have a creative mind and you can't think of things that are not prescribed for you to think about, that are not somehow acceptable and accepted. Things for you to think about. There is something also really quite unique about when you develop your own sense of yourself and again, your sense of humor. People get to know you. They get to know you in a new way as you get to know you in a new way as you develop a sense of self. Shannon talked about how she is happy that now her kids have been able to see her become happy. Kids are usually very happy to know that their parents are healthy, that their parents are doing well, that their parents are enjoying life. And if that's not the case, kids often worry. And in a lot of cultic systems, there are a lot of kids who are worried about their parents who seem to have a very serious life with parents who don't ever seem to enjoy themselves and don't ever seem to be laughing or smiling. But for Shannon to say, my kids have seen me become happy, it's something that is very empowering for kids. Part of the reason that it's empowering is that then they have a parent they don't have to worry about so much. They don't have to feel sorry for as much, but they also get to see what's possible. They get to see personal transformation in action. They get to see that you can overcome things as an adult. They get to see that the after effects don't have to last forever, or at least be so pervasive that they permeate every part of your life forever, and that you can go on and be happy. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I want to mention it again. Sometimes people will say to me, you know, I don't know how I'm going to handle this moment when I run into people from the group, because They are sure that I'm this heathen or I'm a bad person for having left. They're sure that bad things have happened to me or that I'm living a life that is awful, that's sinful, that's lawless or that I'm on my way to dying because I left. How do I let them know that I'm okay? What words can I use? And I've told people, you actually don't have to use any words. You can just be. You can just be the presence of calm, the presence of happiness. You can just embody and exhibit the emotions you weren't really allowed to have in the group. And so when someone sees you who's still involved in the group and you've left and they see that you look healthy or they see that you seem happy, they seem see you kind of as someone who is just really okay and doing fine in the world you then speak volumes without having to say anything at all. There is a powerful message in humor. There's a powerful message in smiling, laughing. There is also something very powerful about it psychologically because in order for you to get to a point where you can laugh about something, you need to be able to have two things happen. One is you need to have the bravery to try it. And if you haven't been in a cultic system, you might not understand that it takes bravery to be able to laugh. Cult leaders can never be laughed about or laughed at. They just would not tolerate it. And that would be the end of you in so many ways in the group because they are all too self-important to be laughed at or even laughed with. And so, yeah, it takes a lot of courage to be able to laugh about things. but also it takes a certain amount of distance. So first, the courage that you know that you're not putting yourself in danger by finding the funny, by finding the humor in something, by finding the humor in some ridiculousness that you're thinking about from your childhood, from within the cult, that it's not something you can get punished for now, and it's not something that God is going to punish you for. But also, if you can laugh, it's usually because you've created enough distance That you're not in it. You've been able to kind of step away and look at it. And in order to do that, you have to, just like taking a good picture, where you have to step back a little bit farther to get the whole scene, the whole vista. It's the same thing with humor. You have to be able to take a step away to be able to see structurally, systemically, what was funny potentially about something or what was ridiculous or over the top or just didn't make any sense. And so to get to the place of humor does mean that you have found the courage and you know you're not in danger for expressing that individual way of looking at it and for you to be able to really know that that means that you have now made a departure, enough of a departure from being in the group, whether it is a geographical departure or an emotional or spiritual departure, where you can look from a distance, and see what you couldn't see when you were too close to it. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at, at underscore indoctrination we love hearing from you too so send us an email at indoctrination show at gmail.com and for more updates on the show visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination